I'm Rita Garwood, Editor-in-Chief of The Monitor, and I am here today with Angela Armstrong. Angela is president of Prime Capital, and she has been named one of Monitor's most innovative people in the equipment finance ecosystem. Congratulations, Angela. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. It's a privilege. So as an innovative person, we hear the word innovation being used a lot today. What does that word mean to you? I've come to feel like innovation is how you think about accomplishing the things that need to get done. So innovation is taking the needs that you have, in our case as a, a business in the equipment finance world, and say, what we need to do is deliver solutions to a client. And the innovations that we can engage with could form a whole spectrum of uh, tools, possibilities, interventions, applications, anything that changes the client experience, reduces the labor friction, allows us to do more with less, um, and, and overall improves that end-to-end -end iteration of what we do, which is deliver access to financing to a customer Anything that we do along that spectrum of that process is an innovation and they are not always disruptions. I, I like to use the word micro innovation. It's better tomorrow than yesterday. It's that sort of small iterative continual improvement process that maybe has fallen into a bit of dustiness uh, as, as yesterday's uh, type of improvement. But I feel like that's the root of innovation is this sense of what we're doing now worked well for yesterday, but if there's something that we could do to change it tomorrow, what could, what's the possibility there? And it's, a, it's a, a language of curiosity and possibility. So using that approach of curiosity and learning, can you describe something that you've done at your company to innovate something that needed to be updated? Yeah, well, what we found over, particularly uh, over the last year, where a lot of people have this very tangible and near experience with uh, being pushed into um, innovative space is how do we deliver services to our clients when we can't physically be in front of them, when we can't physically be interacting with one another. So those kinds of innovations, we've all experienced this push to uh, distributed workforces, this push to a mobile enabled relationship with your customer. And we took it a step further. We said to our team, what are your assumptions? What is everything you do in a day? What are the assumptions that you have about them? And then everybody is going to sit around and poke holes in your assumptions in a, in a very um, co collaborative kind of way. But it's to say, why do you do that? what is your belief set around that task that makes it imperative that you do it in the way you've always done it? How are, and sometimes you find there's value in the ways things have been done. Maybe there's a different way to deliver it, but the task itself is necessary. But what we found is the amount of redundancy that, that um, aggregates in your business over time means that you end up with lab, labor intensive work that doesn't add value. So it's sort of going into a lean style of thinking and everybody is a little bit familiar with the lean methodology, which is usually applied to very repetitive cookie cutter um, 
commoditized kinds of things. And often what we do is much more customized to the customer, to the asset. But we started to say inside of each one of those opportunities with a client, there are lots of things that are commoditized, repetitive um, tasks that we can't scale because of how labor intensive they are. So one form of innovation is just elimination. You know, if it would say you say a spectrum of, uh, we've always done it this way, don't, don't fix it if it ain't broke, to let's be disruptive, let's throw everything out and reimagine this entire world uh, it, without any of the things that we're used to doing. In fact, let's bring in people that know nothing about what we do and have them blue sky. So somewhere along the spectrum of those ends, um, you, there's little tiny micro innovation steps you can do. The first one is eliminating redundancies. The second step is, is there a simple way to automate, outsource, or otherwise replace a process that right now is being done by a person? The third step is to say, is there an easy tool that we can add on that maybe we just don't know how to integrate and maybe we haven't put resources or time behind that in order to automate or uh, increase the speed and the, and the capacity at which we can deliver those solutions to customers? And then farther along towards that total disruption space of innovation is, what if we built something new from scratch? What if we uh, did a joint venture with somebody who's playing in a space near to this and we could adopt their cool new tech to something we're doing? Um, but every single one of those, I think has a place in your business every day. You can't do everything that's disruptive because you still need business as usual. We still need to be able to deliver every day and we can't stop delivering. We can't stay where we were a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. I mean, when we went to uh, uh, distributed workforce at the first time, first lockdown through COVID, the, the big question in our team was, well, what about the paper? We're gonna need printers. And I talked to a business owner actually just last week in our space who said, oh, well, we spent a ton of money. We couriered every member on our team a printer to their home. And I said, wow, so you went from a, a centralized team with a single multifunction unit that actually got people up out of their desks and moving and, and now everyone's sitting at home, you haven't changed the paper issue, you've just distributed the paper issue along with your workforce. And I can't tell you how many people in our industry I've spoken to over decades, at least two decades that said, well, we've gone digital, but now we have digital files and we have paper files. So we're, we're not changing the problem. We're just um, breaking it down into little bits and pieces and maybe it just is less visible that way. We said no printer. We're not buying printers. If you, if you map the things that you can't do in your job every day when you're working from home and it's gonna be a, a messy first month because we don't know what we don't know mark those down, we will problem solve those. We're gonna have a check-in meeting every single day. You bring your list to the, to the meeting. I can tell you, I never heard from anybody. Nobody said to me, oh, since I can't print things, I can't do my job. They had found other kinds of ways. They're all resourceful. Um, and I think you've probably heard of the, the burning platform way of change management. It's saying, I'm letting you all know, we're going across that bridge this platform's on fire and you can stay here. We would prefer you come across the bridge with us to the stronger new platform, but you can stay here. Uh, but, no, but that will mean exiting the team. 
nobody wants to do that, but they have fear of crossing the bridge. Maybe I'm not relevant anymore. Maybe what I'm good at won't exist in the new world. So change management is a lot about that. But when something like a COVID experience forces everyone's hand, it is a great opportunity to just cut the ties that bind and say, we're all coming across the bridge together. I'll stand behind you. I'll be the last to go, but I'm going to shepherd you across. And, and the team uh, was incredibly resilient. And, and we've been able to build in to the middle of this externally forced disruption, all of these little micro innovations that kind of just challenged our assumptions. Um, and be honest with ourselves and say, it's going to be uncomfortable. We're going to have to talk about things that make us feel fearful. But as long as we can be open and honest about those communications, that's the first step to change. So that, that fear you're talking about is something that always comes up in these conversations. People usually seem initially reluctant to make changes. How do you get beyond that? And how do you create a culture that embraces innovation? I think we started a long time ago, years ago, we started some business execution coaching with our team where we took our team off site. Uh, it was an hour every single week. And then we, after a year, when we got into a rhythm, then we carved it back. We work with a group called uh, Results and uh, their website is Unleash Results. And they partnered with companies to say, everyone has great ideas. It's not the lack of ideas that prevents companies from moving forward and innovated and making change or growing or scaling. It's the lack of execution. And I think this is a management wisdom or mantra going back decades. It's not new. They didn't, they didn't coin it. They didn't invent it. But they're helping people frame it and find a way to move it forward. So we had already started on a process of a quarterly sprint uh, objectives that we build team, cross-sectional teams that we sit down, they've got accountabilities. These are not just their day-to-day -day tasks, but it's something above and beyond. So we were already in a cycle process of bringing our teams together to do innovation around how the business was right now and all micro goals. What's one thing we want to change in the next 90 days? But when you get used to having those small successes, it paves the way for comfort. And we would also have failures and we would say, we went about that wrong. We didn't resource it properly. We didn't have all the right people on that in that conversation. We didn't understand the problem well enough and we were trying to solve the wrong problem. So people often I think are fearful of innovation because they don't want to waste resources or they don't know which step to take first. Oh my goodness, it's complex. There's so many solutions out there. Where do you start? I say start with, start with um, bringing your team together. Often the frontline group have the best idea of where the most friction is in the business. And if you can start to peel back that, you free up capacity in the team to start to build the muscles for innovation. So it's a practice that you have to build um, a cycle, a flow with before you can kind of thrust people into thinking in bigger, bigger framework about innovation. So another thing that I hear a lot in the discussions of innovation is how technology is going to change the way the staff of an equipment finance company looks. Um, all the functional pieces might not look the same in mm. 10 years. And sometimes people are afraid of that. Um, 
what are your thoughts about that? And then how do you think hiring trends are going to change over time? Well, I think one of the things we know for sure, and, and I'm incredibly passionate about um, diversity in a business, and this is not any brand of diversity or particular silo of diversity. It's, it's unusual to say silo of diversity because it used to be, well, uh, gender uh, equity in a business was, was a, a silo of diversity. And I, I like to think about big tent diversity. What kind of people do I have on the team What's their thinking style? So do I understand the mix of personalities and do I have a matrix of people's skills, their talents, their capabilities, their competencies, their inclinations? Because the more they also represent that diverse set of clients out there and diverse set of uh, strategic partners, equipment sellers and other kinds of funders and syndicators that we work with uh, outside of our own direct funding portfolio, we may collaborate with lots of other people so the more diverse the team I have internally working on these projects, the more representative they can be of that broader context. And I think for businesses to start to think about what the gaps are that they have, that is generally a place. If you have no age diversity, how can you possibly know what a new generation of business owners is going to want or why? Uh, you know, uh, half the teenagers on the planet are have got some exposure to TikTok. If you have never made an intentional um, cross-sectional group in, in your organization that allows you to get that um, input, then you probably feel you're doing a really good job, but you're, you have the blinders on of your own bias. Uh, so I, I think having a, a big tent of looking at the kind of people you have. Beyond that, would you say, uh, you know, is the question, do we have a lot of technology-friendly people? Well, first of all, I would say, I would argue our next generation of employees are already beyond digital natives. The, the digital technology is really their avatar in the world. Uh, and we need to learn to see them, not just as their physical selves, but through their avatars. And I think that extends to everything we're doing. But that doesn't dismiss the wisdom and experience of people that have been doing risk management and working with customers and understanding the psychology of a process of selling and a process of integrating you know, some technical needs in with a real human-driven business. So they all have a place at the table. It's this sense of um, one will not replace the other, but you need to have them all in order to have a really robust, well-risk-managed, well-integrated uh, thinking team. So you talked about giving all of those people a place at the table. Um, traditionally, companies have been operated in you know siloed types, like this is this department, this is this department, top down. Um, how can you kind of, especially in a, a bigger organization, how can you make sure all of those voices are getting heard? I know your organization isn't like a giant bank or anything, but yeah. what are your ideas on that? Yeah, we're really lucky because being smaller allows us to have a little bit more nimbleness than a very large um, or even public, publicly traded organization that have all kinds of um, uh, complexity around responding to stakeholders and what needs are and banks that have a regulatory market to respond to, obviously very, very complex scenarios. 
But I don't think the size of the organization prevents you from being very intentional about looking at a problem in a business. So if I have a customer and they have to interact with my business from the time they first imagine they have a problem that needs solving, and maybe they've tripped across the idea that the solution might be a financing choice, and then I need to find which company could help me solve that problem, then I'm going to go through this whole really uncomfortable process where I have to, there's some kind of trust generating uh, stage where I have to be comfortable releasing my information to this organization. I'm going to feel like maybe I'm, I'm the one that's asking. I'm not really the client. I'm sort of the supplicant for the money. How do we get them comfortable? Then you're going to take them through this technical credit stage. If I want to build a, an organization that Really, the customer, I, I'm, I'm working to my public stakeholders and my regulatory bodies, but I'm also responding to my customers who drive my business forward and, and enable me to satisfy and keep teams employed and remain profitable, all those really critical things for business sustainability. Um, I can't understand that client's experience. And at the end of the day, that client's what we what is very commonly known as the voice of the customer. What is that client's experience uh, life cycle? And how can I have somebody that interacts the client at each of those stages? If the customer service team uh, or even the collections team responsible for dealing the client at some intermediate or end of life point in their, in their journey with us, doesn't understand what it took to bring that client to the table, how am I ever going to ensure that that customer will come back into the funnel through the front. How, like the end of the stage is almost more important than the beginning of the stage. So if we just think about it as, why would you allow clients to drop out psychologically from that relationship with you just because there was a piece in your business that didn't understand um, the client's needs? And the best way to do that is to have all of those stakeholders have you ever heard of a pro project uh, construction process called integrated project delivery? No. It's um, it's like a it's like design um, build on steroids, and I think it was actually um, the the roots of it are from California, where they would bring. They said, you know, everyone is unhappy with how the construction process works because you have a customer that is never happy at the end. It always costs more than you hope it's going to. Uh, it always takes longer than you've budgeted for time-wise, project-wise, resource-wise. And at the end, nobody's happy. And that's why there's liens and that's why there's litigations and that's why you have problems. And so it's sort of like a love-hate relationship. We love being construction. We hate the process of construction and how people feel in it. So this, pro this integrated project delivery, which I spent a lot of time immersing myself into that, into that marketplace, to understand what they were doing so well. They said, we're going to bring everybody to the table before one idea is, but before we put a proposal out to the client, we need the production people, we need the framing people, we need the trades people, we need the financing people, we need the insurance and the bondholders all to be at the boardroom table before one line goes on the paper. And the owner drives the saying, here's what we need. And then everybody contributes. And then it's a shared success strategy. And what happens is the customer is ecstatic at the end. Everyone is in a shared profit pool. So they're equally invested in 
making that outcome phenomenal. And every stakeholder is an equal partner in the success story. No one takes the brunt because, you know, they were the last man in and they couldn't fulfill the client's need because nobody asked them what it was going to take to put that particular kind of light in that kind of a, a fixture. Um, it, and so this whole process of saying, take a step back, we're trying to push stuff into the client's table that we think is defined because it's optimal for us. But if we could throw away everything we know, and they had a hard time. They couldn't get financing people on board because they're like, well, what's it going to look like? How long is it going to take? What do you mean you've got a pool of people, a shared profit pool? That's crazy, but it works very well. It takes a long time to get owners and the builders and the contractors and the trades and everybody to believe that I'm better off throwing in my fortunes with a bunch of like-minded people to get to this amazing outcome that we're gonna all high five each other at the end. So I spent years integrating with that myself with their world to say, this is a new way of thinking about that's gonna be much more effective. And how can we learn from that and take that into the finance business, which is much the same. The client shows up and we say, well, here's how it's gonna go. And the client goes, okay. And whether they're happy or not, doesn't matter because they have to follow our process and our rules. But what if you could say, if the client had everything they needed and we could bring our people to the table and say, we need to understand what the clients needed is each process. It's our job to make our needs fit into that and come up with that compromise, but be transparent with it up front. Then you could bring the tools and technologies around to fulfill that. But figuring out what that customer journey need is, is kind of, um, high on the list. And I think that's the same thing with bringing your team into the table is like that integrated project delivery, the concept of this big room, let's get everybody here. Uh, you can't describe an elephant if you're only holding the tail or only holding the trunk, you have to see the whole elephant. Yeah, that's it kind of, it's a, it's a common story that you hear, like uh, usually when you're in the sales process, you feel like you're really well taken care of. And then, you know, once the deal's closed, sometimes you can't find someone to talk to or you don't know <laughs> as a customer. So that's that that would be amazing um, to implement. It's a great idea. So in general, equipment finance is not known as the most innovative of industries um, or kind of behind the curve, even, you know, consumer lending and other types of commercial retail um, spaces, what can equipment finance companies do? What would be the first thing that they should do to change that? You know, I, I wrestle with this all the time because as a lender, you're a risk manager. We are really beholden to the sources of our capital, like it or not. We can be very, very connected with our customers and love working with them and love the excitement of seeing a business grow and flourish. And we were a small part of their toolkit to, to thrive and succeed. But ultimately I uh, borrow money from, you know, capital market sources and I am expected to respond to it. Therefore I have to manage the risk. I think we can't expect that that part of the rigor to change and nor would it be good for the market if that did. We have to continue to be rigorous on that side. But the customer experience can be managed in ways that remove the friction and give them tools that just make it easier to get access to the solutions that we're having. 
some of these are simple, um, they're not risk regulatory things, they're red tape regulatory things, Pol you know, legislative policies, uh, could be local government, um, things that have to be changed. And they're, they're often not things that are easy or quick to change. In our jurisdiction, for example, uh, our, our market, it's very difficult for us to move to electronic documents, like a, a DocuSign kind of model. There's many versions of that. That's one brand. But it's very hard for us to move to that because simply put, our, our local provincial legislation doesn't permit e-chattel. E-chattel is something that's been in the market in America for decades, literally decades. And we have not felt the imperative to change that, which is a bottleneck to progress for finance companies. So finance companies would say, we won't, we won't uh, position ourselves in that jurisdiction because we can't be competitive there. So it's things like that to say, if there's a bottleneck, a hurdle that you need to overcome, sometimes it requires some big muscles. It requires the advocacy of the organizations like ELFA, like CLFA, and like all the other um, bodies that represent the asset financing sectors to really be engaged in those policy conversations. And for the policymakers and the legislatures to be open uh, to what those conversations are, because we can't, we can't implement innovation in a market that is rigid and intolerant of, of change. And so FinTech uh, coming into the market is going to push everybody's boundaries. And, and there will be some policy implications of that that have to be considered. Well, when you're a borderless business, what does that mean? Uh, how, how do we effectively uh, make sure that those criteria, where's the information stored, data sets, all these kinds of things, because we have to consider the client's outcomes. But I think there's, there are the micro innovations that I talked about, which is what do you just stop doing or what kinds of things, how do you become better tomorrow than yesterday every single day? And then there's understanding what the big bottlenecks are. So some of those are things that I think as an, as an industry, we have to be very proactive working on some of those big bottlenecks that prevent us from implementing those uh, larger framework of changes. And then I would say our industry is very mature. Uh, I've been in the industry over 35 years. And so a lot of my wisdom comes from the successful history that I've had, but it may not necessarily be current. So I need to be self-aware to know that my expectations of how to run a leasing company might fly in the face of our future customers. But if I'm not innovating right now, in 10 years, I will not only be irrelevant, I'll probably be out of business. So how can I surround myself with a different kind of youth, youthful, innovative wisdom and make sure that I'm not the one that's standing in the way of the change? So I think as leaders, it's incumbent on us to be looking outside at those externalities that could be barriers, but also to make sure we're not the barrier to the change because we have we can be fearful of change. We built a, a, a we have a foundation that's solid and secure and works and it's repetitive. And again, that's back to the don't fix it if it ain't broke. But sometimes that risk taking that got us started in business and made us successful, uh, we have to reiterate that and kind of let let that risk uh, risk budget come into our annual uh, planning 
so that some of our new people can help us um, promote a, a, a more risk uh, tolerant little silos in our business that we can take those safe chances. So one other thing I wanted to ask you, um, I heard that you were working on a project involving blockchain. Mm. Can you talk about that a little bit in your experience? Yes. I probably like every other consumer out there that knows just enough about blockchain to get into real trouble if the conversation goes more than cocktail 10 second level. Um, what I understand is blockchain is a way to provide an indelible audit trail. If you think about like that, everything we do in finance, you want an audit trail. You want to know where did the thing go sideways, who interacted with that, and how do we make sure that uh, uh, things don't become erased from our systems. It's very important for the whole chain of funding. Blockchain is naturally uh, imbued with all of those characteristics. So for us, the blockchain is giving a very secure marketplace. And we're uh, doing a project with a really amazing company called Ferrum who are looking to innovate um, an equipment marketplace. What I think of as democratizing access to financing for customers. We are in the lending industry, we kind of put up our shingle and then we wait. We, we go and we entice the customers to come and do with us and hope that we're really great and we have great customer journeys that will make that client want to do business with us over and over again. Um, but doing something different to introduce a marketplace and in, into that customer's uh, lexicon and say, here's a place where I can go. It's safe. It's auditable. It is uh, indelible. So my relationships and my conversations are going to stay secure there. And we, and I have the choice. I can choose who and how I do business there and the, the partners that come to the table to offer their solutions to me, I can have an opportunity to do that. So it's really a, a new way of using a blockchain platform uh, to drive some innovation into the finance industry. So we're, um, we're excited to see where it goes. It's uh, fun to be in that blue sky, um, blue ocean kind of um, conversation. It certainly inspires me. And uh, I think Ferrum are doing some pretty fun things. They're actually on our list of innovative companies, so. They ought to be. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today and congratulations on being named one of the most innovative people in the industry. It, I appreciate you taking time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I, I mean, our partnerships with uh, both Ferrum and with the Novatech for uh, revolutionizing how we do our workflows have been game changers. And I'm so privileged to work with a team that's curious and uh, inspired by change making and making things better tomorrow. Uh, thank you, Rita, for the interview. And I'm really impressed with how the monitor is uh, focusing on innovation because uh, a rising tide lifts all boats. If we all start talking about innovation, it will become part of our day-to-day. -day. Thank you again. We really appreciate it.